HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus, it's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef and owner of Samisa Restaurant, located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Each week on this show, I sit down with a chef, a restaurateur, to trace the trajectory of their career. What keeps me coming back to record episodes is no matter the guest, no matter what path that person took to arrive at their current position, they have a unique personal story to contribute to the food world. For each person that went to culinary school and worked their way up the more traditional route, there are those that took a more unconventional path, leaving other careers behind to pursue a life on the line working in kitchens. The point is, there's no right way to do this. There's only your way. I hope that this episode and the other 91 episodes recorded inspire you to continue to create your own path to follow. My guest today is Chef Charlene Santiago. She's the executive chef at Canal Street Oysters, the brand new American Oyster Bar. It just opened in September of 2019, and it's part of the restaurant group, with, which includes the East Pole, East Pole Fish Bar, and Pizza Beach. Charlene is almost a lifelong New Yorker, having arrived here from the Philippines when she was five years old. Her path took her to the French Culinary Institute, and then she has put in some serious time in New York City kitchens, working alongside some tremendously talented chefs. 
today on the show, we're going to be talking about, of course, seafood and oysters, uh, spending time in various kitchens, when to stay and when to leave. And we're going to talk a little bit about sourcing as well and how she makes decisions at her new restaurant. Charlene, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you were born in Manila in the Philippines, and you moved to Washington Heights in New York City when you were five. Do you have any faint memories of, of the Philippines? You were obviously very young when you left. Is there anything that that still resonates with you from being a young kid there? Um, it's all like little snippets of memories. I can remember uh, we had chickens and roosters, and my uncle took care of them, and um, and no one ever wanted to to help him and he would have me help him keep an eye on them and feed them and and take care of them so I can remember that (laughs) and where when you were growing up in in the Philippines and and you were you know running around helping out with these animals (laughs) and things like that did you know that you were going to move to the United States was that a surprise or do you you, was that always the plan um I think uh no I don't think it was a plan um I know my aunt was living here at the time and uh she convinced my mom to to come over. Uh, I mean, we were, um, my mom and my dad were not uh, together. So at that point, it was like, okay, do we stay in the Philippines or we move on to um, something new and exciting? So. so you come to New York and you move to Washington Heights. Was that because <laughs> your family was already there? Is that where your aunt was? Yeah, my, my aunt was in uh, 171st Street and... Uh, um, right directly there. So yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting, uh, move from the Philippines to, to, uh, did you move in with her? Yes, we moved in with her. So it was like two kids and two adults living in a one bedroom apartment. Do you have, and how old's your sibling? Uh, my sister is two and a half years older than me. So you come to the United States and you're a really young kid and you're pretty much automatically in school, basically, right? Like yes. the next year you started school. Was yep. that uh, like a huge culture shock? Were you excited about the opportunity to kind of live in the United States or was it terrifying? Oh, um, I think it was extremely exciting for me. I have become that person where like I love um, something new and different and I, I like change uh not in the kitchen but I like change <laughs> um outside of the kitchen and and um learning new things and uh and just like getting an introductory to to things that I'm not used to so I like that was there a strong Filipino community uh here in New York at that time now it seems like you know from a, from the culinary side which is really how I can sort of view what the impact of of the Filipino is in in terms of the cuisine in New York. There are several restaurants in New York that do Filipino food. Um, but is there a big community in New York City or is that not really well represented? Uh, there is there's um, a huge community in Queens, also in in Jersey. Um, but when we moved here, we were as far as I I saw, we were the only Filipinos um, in Washington Heights at that time. So yeah, it was very, very different. Did that create any kind of, um, was, was there difficulties surrounding growing up and, and being the only Filipino family and maybe, uh, feeling isolated or feeling different in any way, or did that not really come into play as a kid? Oh, I mean, 
for sure getting cat calls walking down the street um just because you look different from everybody else but i i mean for me i it made me stronger for sure i mean that's what a new yorker is right yeah. uh you get people talking smack to you and then uh you just talk back <laughs> <laughs> so what is it like growing up as a kid in new york city like regardless of uh, where you were born or, or where you lived in new york city like new york of 10 15 20 years ago different vibes than today right a different yeah. city kind of more aggressive grittier uh what was what was it like to be even before you were a teenager like a young kid in new york city um, I mean, first, I, my parents, I mean, my mom met my stepdad, so my parents, uh, you know, they, they were good. They, they kept us close so that they can keep an eye on us, but at the same time, they let us free. Like, when my mom and my stepdad met, we moved down to the village after that, and, um, but I still had to go to school in Washington Heights in Inwood, and, um, so it was a trek for me, and my sister, my sister was traveling to the Bronx so we had to be you know it was always be ready just make sure like you're looking behind your back is anyone following you like or what are you going to say when someone comes up to you what are the things that you need to know exactly just to get out of a situation you got to have a little bit of an edge when yeah. you're in a kid in New York City uh so when you get a little bit older obviously you you ended up at the at FCI but when you were in high school did you have a specific dream or direction, and did you think to yourself, I'm going to grow up and and be a chef, or was there another sort of passion that was really occupying you at that time? Um, no, cooking was definitely not in my mind, other than, like, you know, my parents were busy working, so I would cook at home, and... Um, I can remember it started off, my dad is a huge Marcella Hazan fan, and um, he had literally all the books, and he would pick out a recipe, and um, they would just leave a little index card in there and, and tell me, okay, this is the one that you're going to cook tonight. We bought all the food, and um, you know, and we'll be home by a certain time. <laughs> so I would have to like cook that, and I liked it, and it was enjoyable for me. Um, and, uh, but it, it was never a thought for me to be like, oh yeah, this is what I'm going to do once I get older. I mean, you know, um, for, for Filipinos, I mean, if you ever, if you ever know any Filipinos, it's always like, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a nurse or a lawyer. That was always the thing that everyone, um, is looking to do and, it wasn't what I wanted to do, um, but I, I was thinking, like, maybe business, maybe marketing, doing that. Um, my dad was a professor in NYU in marketing, so I was like, oh, maybe I can follow in that and do something in that line of work. So definitely not cooking. <laughs> but they still had you in the kitchen every single night. They, they did still working. have me in the kitchen. So. And that must have been, I mean, even after that becomes, like, the norm for you where you're every night executing these recipes, <laughs> that isn't really normal to have to have your kid just, you know, preparing a multi-course meal for you every single night. But you were obviously enjoying it. You were taking a lot of satisfaction and kind of completing the recipe and, and putting it out on the table for everyone. So how did the hobby aspect of cooking then translate for you into, oh, wow, FCI, this is an opportunity. This is something that could really be a career. When did that 
uh, click into place? Well, I, I went to college for a year and I basically partied that year off. <laughs> and then um, my parents were like, uh, you're not going to do this anymore. <laughs> so um, did you stay in New York for that or? No, I was out in Virginia. So okay. I even was like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go, uh, you know, get some time without the parents. And um they reeled me back and was like, okay, the only thing we know that you're really good at is cooking, so we're going to um, put you in the in culinary school. <laughs> so. so you come back and you're in FCI. Does the partying continue? Did you get serious at that point? Um, I, I know that you were working a lot when you were in FCI. So at a certain point, you must have started to get pretty responsible uh, on the kind of professional work front so how do how were you you balancing all of that and and were you taking it seriously or was it really just like i'm gonna just get through this and then i'll figure something out um i well i allowance was never a thing that was given to us ever in in our house uh you had to earn every single thing i um so i just got jobs to have money in my pocket uh and and then going to cooking school i mean French Culinary Institute at that time, it was only like a three day um, per week uh, class. So um, so I was able to manage three days. And then also, uh, you know, I was working at a music school. Um, I was working at a bakery. I, uh, I was also working at Abercrombie and Fitch like overnight. So it was it was a pretty crazy, crazy time for me, for sure. Um, I think being young, and having all that energy definitely motivated me to be able to to do that. Uh, the focus on school, I mean, I was the youngest person in our class. I was uh, 18, 19 years old and trying to be serious, but not really. And um, I think once I hit the midpoint of, of school and realized, oh, like I, I can actually do this and... And, um, you know, the, sh the chefs that were there helping out and teaching were really motivating me and just saying, like, hey, you can do this. You can you can be a professional. Like, you, you're you not just taking this class because you're going to be a good home cook. So that's what um, that's when I realized, like, OK, I, I'm going to I'm going to be a little bit serious about this. Were there certain aspects of culinary school that you found either classes or specific technique that you just found really satisfying to learn like you obviously you work a ton with seafood now and that is one of those things that it's a fairly complex process of breaking down fish and knowing when product is good and bad you have to learn a lot to in order to to be good at that did you gain some foundational knowledge of that at culinary school or did that come later at restaurants um, I think it came later at restaurants just cause like they're bombarding you with all the basics in culinary school, um, which is a good basis for, for everyone. Um, I don't necessarily think that you have to go to culinary school at this point. Um, if you have a really good mentor and a good kitchen to work in. Um, but I, I did learn a lot of that stuff later on in my life. Um, but Weirdly enough, my first kitchen uh, restaurant was also a seafood restaurant. So. Yes, it was. So <laughs> the the minnow, which yes. was where you worked right out of culinary school, 
uh, the menu there has a lot of similarities. It kind of <laughs> set the stage for things that maybe you were going to do later. It, it had oysters. It had, you know, uh, um, a po' boy and a lobster roll on the menu. And as we'll talk about a little later, you worked at the John Dory for a long time. And of course, now you run Canal Street Oysters, which is super seafood heavy. <laughs> so um, my first question about the minnow is... Um, did it create your love of seafood or did you go to the minnow because you were intrigued by what they were doing there? Um, no, it definitely created the love of seafood there. I um, was a very meat and potatoes kind of person um, when I was younger just because, you know, uh, we ate a lot of Filipino food. So when I um, got to eat steak and mashed potatoes, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so... I always put seafood as a back burner when I ate, but then coming into the minnow and working there and, and seeing what um, the different things that you could do with seafood and, um, you know, that really like helped out with loving, loving and working with seafood a lot. So a lot of people that come on this show, their first job has just a huge amount of importance because especially when they come out of culinary school, they realize that what they've learned in the classroom is really not as, it's not as fast paced. It doesn't have the same kind of weight as being in the kitchen. You obviously, you learn a lot in culinary school. And like you said, there's like the building blocks are given to you, but then you get into the restaurant and everything changes. Yes. Um, when you, when you look back on the minnow, does it, does it carry a huge amount of weight for you or was it just a first job? Oh, no. I mean, I think all my jobs carry a lot of weight for me. Um, the Minnow was a great startup, uh, I think, for me. Just like, a, you know, it was a 50, 60 seat restaurant. It was a mom and pop uh, ran restaurant. It was um, Aaron Bashi was the chef. His wife, uh, Vicky, was the pastry chef there. His kids would be running around helping. Um, I mean, it was a really, really um, fun environment to be in. And, you know, 19 years old, just getting out of culinary school, everything to me was super shiny and great and just, like, sponging in all this information that was being given to me. So I loved it. Most people move around a lot. The... I think it's fair to say that the norm these days, you don't even get a year out of most people. The average is like nine months. People pop around so much, unfortunately. And you stay places. You were at the Minnow for three years. You were in the BLT group for a long time. Yeah, another three years in there. And then you were um, with April Bloomfield for more eight, than... Eight, nine years. Yeah, yeah. At, at John Dory and That's Breslin crazy. combined. So, <laughs> so you stay places yeah uh talk about that why do you stay places what in your personal opinion is uh is valuable about that um why is it valuable uh i think the mentality the, these days now is that um you know, just get as much information um, from the different restaurants as much as possible. And I, I think that is um, a good mentality. But there's also the the um, the fact of staying in one place and, and learning the things that you don't necessarily 
can get just from jumping from one place to another. Um, there's just so much more that you can see, um, you know, from becoming a line cook and then turning into a sous chef and then potentially becoming the chef de cuisine in that restaurant. And then there's just so many things that, um, that you can just learn from that's from like ordering and, uh, and, um, food costing or just seeing like the numbers of, of, of um, reservations that are coming in and how that's going to like affect the night, you know, and service and that kind of thing. And uh, I think that um, everything is is shiny and new when you when you jump from one restaurant to another, and that's the exciting part of it for the line cooks today. And um, and it's a little bit of work to stay and and you know learning the other aspects of the restaurant. Yeah, there's a certain amount of peeling back the curtain and being able to dig deeper that occurs uh, after your first year of being in a place. You know, the first year you're just really, okay, this is my job. My job fits on this piece of paper. This is my job description. I'm going to do it. But then after that, uh, as you as you rise and you get more comfortable, things can become uh, either more apparent behind the scenes and also you get more access, right? So um, as someone... Uh, who stayed somewhere for for a long time in each place, and now you're at the top? How do you motivate people to stay? What what do you do that creates an environment where someone is going to do what you did? Um, you know, I have a I have a lot of people that came with me uh, to Canal Street Oysters that have worked with me from previous jobs, from um, Reynard at the White Hotel and at uh, John Dory Oyster Bar. Um, and I, I think the motivation is just like trying to make sure that they're learning um, something different each day, each week, you know, um, motivating them to move up to a different station, to a different uh, position, um, and not necessarily in the same restaurant either. And just like, um, you know, telling them that like, hey, you can do something else other than just being a line cook. You can become a sous chef. You can be a manager of, of the front of the house if you wanted to and, and learn that aspect of of the restaurant. Um, but it's just the motivation of like, don't just sit still. Don't be just okay with where you're at. Like you, you have to keep moving on and like, and learning something different just to like progress for yourself and in life. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more of The Line with Chef Charlene Santiago. Stick with us. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, 
the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Chef Charlene Santiago. She runs the kitchen at Canal Street Oysters. In the first half of the show, we were talking a little bit about going to culinary school and some of your first jobs and that you really stick around places for a long time and uh, and that there's things to kind of glean from every single job as you grow and kind of advance up the ladder. I want to talk a little bit about Picholine where you worked for a little while in Lincoln Center. Um, very high-end restaurant, fine dining. Uh, was that an experience that you enjoyed, or did you not enjoy that? Oh, no. I Like I said, like every restaurant that I went to, I definitely um, enjoyed. That was a, that was a very crazy um, experience for me. The chef had just changed, um, and uh, I, I was just coming into, like, you know, not a basically a new kitchen so they were changing all the menus and the dishes and um just running around trying to like catch up and make sure like we had everything ready to go for this like crazy uh push that was gonna come in at seven and then the next one at nine o'clock like it was it was really really cool um got to work with um a lot of game meats that i had never worked before or have worked with in a while. Um, um, so it was really, really exciting for me to learn all all those things. That style of service was different than something you had seen before. And now you, and after that, you moved into a, still an upscale, but a more casual setting. Did that kind of redefine the way you thought about where your career would go or was it not that drastic? Um, uh did that define my career? Um, I think that um, I like the casual. I like the, you know, uh, in the words of April Bloomfield, rustic um, settings of, of the kitchen. Um, it was a little bit uh, much to have that fine dining, like having to do that every single day. And um, but but it was like still a really, really great experience for me. Um, but now I do like the whole, you know, rustic, casual, uh, um, mode that we're in now. Can we talk a little bit about April and the Breslin and the John Dory? And you spent so much time there and both of those, uh, considered really excellent restaurants. The John Dory has since closed. The Breslin's still around. Um, talk about that experience. You spent almost a decade in that restaurant group. Yeah, that seems crazy to me though, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, it was, uh, so I had just had a child <laughs> and um, I had moved away for a year. Um, 
and I want to come back to the city and I felt like I wasn't up to par because I had been away for a year. So I, you know, went on Craigslist, got an interview or a trail um, at the Breslin and, um, you know, I, I didn't talk about my experiences from the past. I just wanted to keep my head down and work and show them uh, what I could do and, um, and just observe and work with everyone and just try to learn, learn, learn as much as possible. And, um, but in my mind, I was like, you know, I do have a certain amount of experience and I put a goal in my head that I wanted to be a sous chef uh, within a year of being in the company, um, which sort of kind of happened. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, even beyond April, who is just such a tremendous talent, there's Christina Leckie, Josh Even at the John Dory, where you would end up going on to be the chef de cuisine there. Uh, can you talk about the team and just learning from each other and growing so many people that have worked in those restaurants that started out as line cooks now have gone on to run other restaurants, which, uh, speaks to something about the, the culture of, learning and working and, and, uh, and those kitchens. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was such an amazing environment for me. My mind, uh, was blown when I went into that kitchen. The, there was such a like strong family, um, uh, environment in, in our kitchens and coming off of a, coming off of, from Pichelin and, you know, um, very strict kitchen environment versus, I mean, mind you, like obviously working for April Bloomfield is a, is still a strict kitchen environment, but you know, there is a lot of, um, helping out. Um, you know, I consider Christina an amazing friend, uh, an amazing chef, um, and her just, being helpful to me in every way. Josh also, I mean, I can just remember Josh trying to motivate me as much as possible. And he, all he, all I can remember him saying is like, it's never going to get any easy, easier. It'll just get harder, but you'll move up, but it's never going to get easier. And, um, and I can remember that up till now. And it's, it's a motivation that when I just think things are like super rough and like, what did I get myself into? And I just think about him saying that to me and, um, so much respect for those guys um, and the people that I have worked with and still working with. So, how does it make you feel when you walk by or you hear, you know, that the John Dory is is no longer open? It was a big part of your life. Uh, from a personal side, I was the chef of a restaurant that is no longer the location that I was the chef of is no longer open. And, so I know what that feels like, but I'm curious to hear from you when a huge part of your life is spent somewhere and then you can't go back and physically revisit it. How, how does that make you feel? Um, it's, it's very, very sad, super sad. Um, I mean, the one thing that I, I got from there is that like I have all these friends and uh, you know people that I can still work with even if we're not at the John Dory, you know, just like the connections that I've made because of working there and the the outreach that has come out and been super supportive, um, opening up Canal Street Oysters and and just people coming by and saying hi or coming in for dinner or, you know, 
I um, had a friend right in the beginning um, just help um, help with cooking and just you know just being there and and being super super supportive and I I love that um, but yeah it is it is sad that John Dory is not there anymore. One of those friends that you worked with for a really long time, Christina Lecky, moved over to uh, Reynards, which was at the White Hotel in Williamsburg, and you went there as well. Yes. Uh, it's a, it was an Andrew Tarlow restaurant, so uh, in the ethos and uh, so, sort of ideas that Andrew Tarlow puts into all his restaurants was present. And can you speak a little bit about what drew you to the project um, beyond just working uh, alongside Christina and, uh, and also talk a little bit about how you um, ended up taking over that kitchen as well? Um, well, I, first of all, you know, um, I worked at the John Dory for a really long time and there was a point where I was like, okay, I need to change it up a little bit. Um, and Christina had, um, offered me a position, um, uh, to come and help her over there and, and help organize and basically like, uh, you know, become a stronger team at that place. And, um, I loved working with her. And so going over there was, um, so so nice and uh, easy like um transition and um you know it's just like one of those things where you're like in your house and your friend comes over and you guys just start cooking and that's that's what we were doing um uh yeah and and so the style of that restaurant very much um influenced by both christina's ideas but also kind of the uh, ideas of what a Tarlow restaurant should be, you know, diner, Marlowe, the, the bakeries and the butcher shops and all that. Um, uh, probably a, a big change from the John Dory, not nearly as much seafood, a lot more heavy dishes with roasted vegetables and meats. Is that fair to say? Like yes. sort of maybe not the exact opposite, but we're talking about pretty big differentials in menu ideation and creation right yes um was that a relief was it kind of scary to jump back into something totally different how did you feel about that uh, it was definitely scary I mean you know you've been in a you've been in the restaurant uh for eight years and you're doing things that uh you're very accustomed to and then all of a sudden I jumped into something completely different but that's that's what I wanted to do I wanted to change it up for myself and and challenge myself and um and it was it was fun, you know. Like they they had a big hearth in there, um, and I was just amazed at being able to like work work there and 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 just doing things differently. I mean, the John Dory was an all electric kitchen with five induction burners and one oven, and then we you know Reynard was a open hearth, uh, wood oven. Uh, I mean, like multiple levels <laughs> it, it was definitely uh, a monster that needed to be <laughs> to be tamed so yeah so at a certain point christina moves on and you take over the kitchen there and uh it wasn't 
necessarily like that you saw that that it was going to happen or, or maybe you did know behind the scenes but over time uh the restaurant has evolved and uh andrew tarlow has left that project and it's now a new restaurant group has taken over um style of the restaurant has changed and uh the name has changed did you leave before or after andrew tarlow and what was that experience like it sounds like it would have been maybe kind of tumultuous and that you if i'm not speaking out of turn that maybe you were stuck in the middle of like a bit of a power struggle was it like that at all or uh is that a misconception no 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 i was definitely i i left uh, um after andrew left um and the change of hands was definitely a um a factor in me in me leaving and there's just like uh a lot of different ideas that was coming through and i didn't necessarily agree with those things so that's why i i left reynard um very sadly of course because there was a lot of good people that were working working there and um and again another family that that i grew into and um you know loved loved everyone that we worked together with so when you leave a project and you're looking to start another job uh at this point you have such a tremendous resume and such a big network i imagine that you have a lot of opportunities that get presented to you that you can find out about how do you look to evaluate your next position did you put a list together and think well maybe i'll go trail around did you think maybe i'll leave the city and pursue another job i I feel like at that point in your career you could have probably done anything that you wanted and you've since made the decision to come to canal street oysters so for those that are in your similar position of being in a spot for a long time and thinking to themselves what is my next move i would love to hear about how you made those determinations um I had several um, uh, opportunities for sure uh, before Canal Street Oysters, and I and I had to really think hard on what I wanted to do and where what direction um, I wanted to go. At I took a, a few months off, and you know hadn't really done that in a while, and just taking time for myself. And I think that a lot of people need to do that and and consider what what they want to do. And and I hope that they really love what they want to do. Um, and you know, I I like I love seafood, and um, you know, it's it's where I am very comfortable with but i i wanted to um you know try it in a different way i mean it's yes it's very similar to the john dory oyster bar with oysters but but i want to um come up with things that like you know that's close to heart for a lot of people but also it's it's not exactly that um yeah so when you sign on to the canal street oyster project not open yet so you're you're now going to be involved in an open from start to finish uh had you ever done that before and what are some of the differences between going into a project like that 
and going into a project where it's an existing restaurant where you are taking over as as the chef. I imagine that there are some pros and some some also some major hardships along the way as you're dealing with just totally different variables in each situation. Yeah. Um, we opened, I opened up the John Dory Oyster Bar um, with Josh, Christina, uh, April, and, um, but as a sous chef, right? So that, that's a different um, uh, mindset already. So we're, we're recipe testing, we're, we're doing all these things, we're, um, you know, organizing the kitchen, where do we want things to go, and that, that kind of thing. But the, Big responsibility was never on my shoulders. It was more on the other chefs. Um, and then, you know, moving to Reynard, which is there's something, you know, it's already set up. It's ready to go. It just needs to be um, there needs just to be a stronger uh, push from the chefs to organize things. And it's it was such a, a big place that um, there were multiple sous chefs and um to just have one executive chef was just uh was too much right so you needed to have a lot more hands um to keep an eye on the place to make sure it's running well properly to make sure things are are consistent and um uh and the quality stays the same and um so there's a little difference in that versus canal street was um being built uh, in the summer. So there was no kitchen. There was no, like, it's literally, it was a nightclub and the kitchen was the coat check room. And we turned the coat check room into a kitchen. So instead of building out into a larger kitchen, we just built up. So there's, you know, tons of shelving above us. Do we, can we reach it? Not necessarily, but, um, (laughs) yeah, uh, it, it's such a different, like I said, uh, you know, it just gets harder. It doesn't get any easier, but it's, it's, it's challenges that you're going to overcome. So, um, you know, working in a kitchen that was barely built and trying to make food and, um, you know, now organizing, where do you want to put the plancha? Where do you want to put the, uh, the fryers? Where do you want to put like all these things? And, uh, Ansel system and, you know, uh, the electricity, how much electricity can you pull in? Like, I, this is also another electric kitchen. So um, we had to pull in so much of this stuff that, like, you know, when you walk into a kitchen that's already made, you're just like, oh, okay, it's ready to go. And this is just, like, literally up till now, we're like, okay, can we add anything else to this kitchen to just um, make it just slightly easier for us each day? So. When uh, when you're talking about not only building the kitchen and recipe testing and building the menu, you have to create your uh, book of purveyors and yes. figure out who you're going to work with. And seafood for a lot of people, even chefs, even people that have worked a lot in restaurants, it can be a very daunting process. It's hard to keep up with what's allowed what you're allowed to serve what's socially acceptable what's being overfished and then there are so many in seafood it feels like uh oh i get this specific oyster from this specific person right i get my trout from a i get my salmon from b and like we fly this in because it's only good from japan or whatever so in terms of 
purveyors, obviously you knew a lot of folks from, from the John Dory. Did you go back to the drawing board a little bit at all in, in terms of menu creation and in terms of sourcing? Or did you have some tried and true folks that you really wanted to work with again that you were kind of excited to bring back into the fold? Um, definitely there were people that, are, even, you know, working at Reynard, I, I was working with them too, but there were some people that I couldn't because it was mainly meat, um, restaurant, but with Canal Street, um, I definitely reached out to all of the people that I was working with at the John Dory, um, and, and also able to, uh, build new relationships that I, I didn't have from before, or I didn't think that I can use them or that kind of thing. You know, like I think that there's the purveyors have also evolved um, with food and knowing the demand of people wanting sustainable fishing and um, and uh, you know trying to support the chefs also even even better at this point to um, to to be able to bring that to to the kitchen. So. One of the things that is so intimidating about seafood is that it's it's very temperamental. You can you can butcher a steak and you can leave it out for service all night long and you can flash it and you've you've got a lot of wiggle room, right? With with a lot of cuts of meat. With fish, it really has to be treated incredibly delicate and it goes bad very quickly and yes. also <laughs> and also you have to be a skilled even your your line cooks that have just started they have to be incredibly skilled in like the nuanced way that they evaluate whether things are good or bad right because a, a just a normal person comes into like a seafood restaurant and they're like whoa it smells very strongly of fish in here but there's like good fish smells and bad fish smells right. and and so that is like a very hard thing from my perspective to to teach uh how do you go about just preparing everyone to know when everything is in their their perfect zone like how do you tell someone like that scallop is perfect that octopus is bad like how do you go about teaching that at the restaurant um i it's just a i guess a trial and error of of tasting, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I tell them uh, every day to just taste everything, check everything, um, you know, make sure make sure it's right. If there's anything that's that's slightly questionable, um, then it means it's it's you know to just come up to me and, and check with me, and then it's it's most likely if there's like some sliver of doubt in their mind, it's probably not okay. Um, but it's also it's the tasting. Like I honestly like. I have them taste something that's good and I have them taste something that's off and, and then they get it, you know, because it's, there's such a, um, you can really just tell from, from that. And, uh, and sometimes I just see a little like sparkle in their eye, though <laughs> it's a little cheesy, but I see they're like, Oh, I get it. I understand it. Like I, like I see the difference now. And that's, that's really like <laughs> what matters. Yeah, not that I like product being wasted or thrown away, but pretty recently uh, a prep cook came over and they said, they gave me a quart and they said, this smells bad, right? <laughs> and I said, yes, it does. 
It does smell bad. Don't use that. Wow, good job. Way to smell things and taste things before you serve it to someone. And there was this real sort of satisfaction in that moment, even though, obviously, we had to throw it in the garbage. Uh, so I, I looked over the, the menu. I haven't been to the restaurant yet, but it is obviously very seafood heavy. Um, from what I could tell, there was only a couple things on the menu, maybe one or two things that don't have seafood in them. The The name of the restaurant is sort of indicative of what you're getting yourself into, but also in New York, people don't pay attention to anything and they're very pushy as diners and you get a lot of tourists. So what I'm wondering is, was there any internal pressure like from yourself or from the owners to put a half chicken or like a hanger steak on the menu do you are you doing specials that are non seafood to accommodate for the fact that someone might walk in and not want seafood that night? Or are you just we're a seafood restaurant? This is what we offer. It's it's great. Take it. Take it. <laughs> no, no, uh, we do have a burger on the menu, right. so that's that's our one uh, meat dish. But I I am like um you know we're progressing and we're we're. We're changing up for sure, changing the menu. I mean, it's winter time, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, cold dishes on the menu. So uh, there there are going to be some changes. Um, I would like to put a little bit of meat on the menu, um, you know, just to change it up for all of us also uh, in the kitchen and not just, um, just work with the seafood. I mean, one or two items here and there, but uh, nothing too drastic, but... Uh, I mean, you know, coming from Reynard, I do miss uh, all the meats and, um, you know, the things that I learned from there. So I, I would like to adapt that also into this menu. Are there ever any flavors that uh, are, are maybe flavors from your childhood that you integrate into the menu? Or is that not something that is really appealing to you right now? Like, are there any dishes that have elements of Filipino cuisine on the menu at Canal Street, or does it not really fit in of what you're trying to do there? Oh, no. Seafood is so, uh, you know, um, easy to, like, add the different flavors from from anywhere. Uh, so there are some um, some ingredients that I, that I use um, that's influenced from my childhood. I mean, we do a uh, mackerel tartare on a squid squid crackling that we make in house, and um, so these are just basically the little chips that we used to get in the bag uh, when I was a kid, and I just wanted to transform that onto the dish. So yeah. <laughs> cool. What What is most satisfying to you about leading a kitchen? Like, what keeps you coming back to work every single day? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I love the cooking, um, and the people, I mean, it's really, you know, it's such a different environment. I, I guess I, I don't really know. I haven't worked in a office job or, or in any other, uh, um, uh, occupations as much as I have with cooking, but the people are just so amazing that you get to meet, you know, front of the house and, um, and back of the house and their life stories and, and how they got there and what their motivations are and, and, um, you know, where they want to be, where they want to go. Uh, I mean, having a conversation with one of the servers the other night, um, just sometimes like blows my mind because like they bring up things that I, I 
sometimes won't even think about and then all of a sudden there's like a little um you know reminder like hey you know this is this is the situation and this is uh this is what's happening and i'm just like oh yeah okay cool i like that <laughs> how would you describe your leadership style and how have you kind of found your voice have you taken little elements of mentors and people that you've worked for in the past or have you just kind of over time just felt it out and determined how you wanted to lead by yourself um no it's it's definitely influences from the different chefs i don't necessarily uh think some of those influences were the, of the best but um but seeing it uh now and and my past and what has been shown to me um you know i there's certain days I have to check myself and there's certain days I'm like, Oh, uh, I was actually really nice. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think, um, you know, overall, you know, I try to be as positive as possible in the kitchen. I know because I can remember when, um, you know, if the chef's in a bad mood, the entire kitchen and even the floor can be in a bad mood. So there's, you have to be, you know, stronger than what you want yourself to be, even if it's a bad day. Like you have to have that um, positive, positive influence for, for the other people that are working with you. Tell everyone where they can find Canal Street Oysters. It just opened a couple months ago. It's safe to say that you're spending quite a bit of time there and that they can probably find you there. So if there's an address and a website that you can give a shout out, and is it open seven days a week for dinner? Yeah, uh, so it's 380 Canal Street. It's right on the corner of Canal Street and West Broadway. Um, it's canalstreetoysters.com is our website. And um, we're open from 4 p.m., till uh midnight seven nights a week uh yes <laughs> cool charlene thanks so much for being here and sharing with us a little bit of your story and and how you ended up where you are today we really appreciate it thank you so much Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find all of these episodes and all the episodes for all the other 34 Heritage Radio shows and every show that's ever run by going to heritageradionetwork.org. And you can find this episode and all the other episodes of The Line by going to wherever you find your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and on Spotify. We'll see you next week for a brand new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.